Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.14, Agrippina Minor, Partner in Power. Last time, we saw how Agrippina managed to navigate the minefield of suspicion and repression during the Empress of Messalina, and how she was eventually chosen to be Claudius's fourth wife and Empress of Rome in January 49 CE. Today, we will see what kind of an Empress she would turn out to be. This episode marks the halfway point on the series on Messalina, which means we are approaching the end of the first season of the other half, the first First Ladies of Rome. I've had some great suggestions coming in for the next season, and I hope to get a poll up for my patrons to vote on in the coming week or so. Remember that only other half patrons get to vote on what the next season will be, so if you've been considering signing up, now is a great time to do so. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast if you would like to support the show and be ready to cast your vote. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Claudius and Agrippina were always a bit of a curious match. We've already talked about how closely they were related, being uncle and niece, and Claudius is reported to have said of her after they were married that, quote, She was my daughter and adopted child, virtually born and raised in my own lap. Which, yeah, not helping the level of creepy. He was about twice her age, 58 to her 33 and given the general lack of respect shown to him by the ancient sources, it is widely taken for granted that Agrippina ran rings around her husband, besotted by his younger, beautiful, yet evil and conniving bride. But in actual fact, despite their shared DNA, this match made all the sense in the world. Agrippina wanted to get her and her son back into the position of power that she felt was their right, and Claudius wants to share in the legacy of Germanicus and bask in the popularity that that entailed. 
He had no need for additional children from her. He had his own son, and Nero would provide security for the succession. But he didn't just want Agrippina for her Julio-Claudian legacy and famous father. He also wanted her to play a role in government. Like most of history's great autocrats, he recognised the importance in centralising all of the imagery of power in himself, but also in delegating power to those in whom he trusted. One man cannot rule alone. Claudius recognised that the empire had been at its strongest under the rule of Augustus, and he equally saw that much of his ancestors' success derived from the strength of his marriage and political partnership with Livia. And there are many similarities between Agrippina and Livia. They both came from august houses, more so than their husbands. They both were intensely aristocratic, believing strongly in their own right to rule. They both were extremely keen to make a mark on the empire and be involved in the business of rulership. And, of course, they also saw it as their supreme duty to ensure the succession of their sons. Agrippina knew that, given her husband's age, she may not have a huge amount of time to cement both her own position and that of her son. She'd already been widowed twice, remember, and had twice seen her fortune and favour collapse around her. No one knew better than she how fickle life could be. And of course, as we all know, the best way to entrench your position and that of your children within a ruling dynasty was through marriage. She'd already done the biggest part of that job, by marrying Claudius, though at the time they had not made it totally official, but she needed to make sure that her son was firmly set into the regime as well. And there was only one ideal candidate, in Agrippina's mind, for Nero. Claudius's daughter, Claudia Octavia. She was the younger of Claudius's two daughters, being born to him and Messalina in 40 CE, shortly before he came to the imperial throne. His elder daughter, Claudia Antonia, was ten years older and already married, for the second time in fact, and so she wasn't really an option. Octavia was eight years old at the time, so about four years away from marriageable age, and about three years younger than Nero. A marriage between them would further entrench the bond between both Agrippina and Claudius, as well as the two halves of the Julio-Claudian family more generally. What could be more perfect than step-siblings, who were also first cousins once removed, marrying each other? Well, there was one snag in this bit of incestuous alliance-making. Octavia wasn't a free girl. She was already betrothed to somebody else. This person was Lucius Junius Silanus. At 22 years old, he was quite a bit older than his betrothed bride, not that that was unusual at the time. He was a member of the Junii, a very old, wealthy and powerful patrician family that could trace his ancestry right back to the old days of the Roman monarchy. His family tree is just a litany of consuls, dictators and famous generals. His father, Marcus, served as a consul and then as governor of the province of Africa, while his mother, Amelia Lepida, had been a granddaughter of Augustus's daughter, Julia and Marcus Agrippa. This connection to the Junii on one hand and the greater Julio-Claudian family on the other meant that Lucius had quite a bit of pedigree behind him, and he made the most of it. He served as Prefect of Rome and a Priest of Mars before joining Claudius' army that invaded Britannia in 43. 
Indeed, he was the one given the honour of telling the city of the conquest of those wet, grey islands on the edge of the world, and played a prominent part in the triumph thrown to celebrate that great victory. For all of this, and more successes that I won't trouble you with, he was granted the hand in marriage of Claudius's daughter, Octavia. Indeed, it is quite possible that Claudius saw him as a potential backup heir should anything happen to Britannicus. He was certainly qualified enough. All he had to do was wait for her to come of age. Now, as you'll remember from last time, Agrippina didn't hold many scruples about breaking up marriages when it suited her. But even as empress, it would not be easy to arrange the severing of this betrothal. Lucius had survived purges before, and the strength of his connections meant that he couldn't just be swept aside. Claudius wasn't a tyrant like Caligula. He wasn't willing to risk upsetting such a powerful family just for the sake of pleasing his new wife. But he wouldn't help her. But that was okay. Agrippina was quite able to handle this herself. Agrippina was a patient woman, and a subtle one. She was not one for the full-on front-stabbing assault. She was more Frank Underwood than John McClane. We already saw in the last episode how she orchestrated her elevation to the Empress by a combination of political theatre and the choreographed use of carefully placed allies and clients. She would use similar tactics to destroy Lucius Solanus. She instructed her allies to do a bit of digging, to see what skeletons were in his closet. Now, of course, every Roman politician had whole graveyards of what we would consider skeletons these days. What she needed was quite a bit more than what a modern opposition researcher would require. In other words, she needed something really juicy. Something that would weaken Lucius so much that she would be able to take him down without any risk, all while keeping her own hands nice and clean. In this, she had the support of most of the freedmen in the administration, all aware of the potential rewards of being in her favour. But the whole thing was led by Vitellius. We met him last week. He had been Claudius and Necropina's man in the Senate, who had made that rousing speech in support of their marriage. He held an important senatorial office, that of censor. This meant that he had the power to investigate senators for any moral impropriety, and to expel them if they were found wanting. He was therefore ideally placed to find any illicit secrets that Lucius Solanus had been hiding, and it didn't take long for him to locate one. By coincidence, Vitellius was also the father-in-law of Lucius's sister, who had a bit of a reputation, shall we say, for being a bit of a wild child, and he heard rumours that brother and sister were perhaps a little, shall we say, too close? Here is how Tacitus describes it. Quote, Vitellius put an infamous construction on the somewhat incautious, though not criminal, love between the brother and sister. The emperor listened, for his affection for his daughter increased his readiness to harbour doubts about his son-in-law. Silanus, meanwhile, he knew nothing of the plot, was suddenly expelled from the senate by edict of Vitellius. Claudius, at the same time, broke off the betrothal. From reading the other sources, it seems that, at the very least, the charges against Lucius and his sister were not entirely baseless. If they were, they would have absolutely slammed Agrippina for making up such absurd allegations. That said, there is little doubt the charges were exaggerated. 
Now, one might expect a man as powerful and wealthy as Lucius Solanus to be able to launch a counterattack against Vitellius and Agrippina, or for there to be at least some pushback against them, as had happened, for example, when Messalina had taken down Asiaticus. But the difference here was that this attack had been carried out professionally and swiftly. It was presented to everyone, including Lucius, as a fait accompli. He was left with no cards in his hand without knowing he had even been playing for his career. He had been completely outclassed. Humiliated and defeated, he committed suicide on New Year's Day 49 CE, the very same day that Agrippina officially married Claudius. He would not be the last casualty of the reign of Empress Agrippina. That said, while Agrippina does have this reputation, the facts suggest that she brought about a period of relative calm. Far fewer senators and equestrians were put to death while she was empress than under Messalina, and, in general, the regime had far better relations with the nobility as well. As I've already said, this is because Agrippina wasn't interested in acting in a highly confrontational manner with the ruling elite. She was one of them. She talked their language and understood how to stroke their egos. Now, this is not to say that there weren't political executions or repression while she was empress. Far from it. But not only was there less of it while she was there, it was far better targeted and more effectively handled. Basically, a pro was now in charge. The problem we have here, as has been the case so often, is that the kind of power and influence that Agrippina would have exerted was mostly behind the scenes, away from the prying eyes of historians. We can get the general scope of what she did, and of course we can extrapolate things from the results, but we don't have a play-by-play. This was as much the case for men like Tacitus and Suetonius as it is for historians writing for today. But even with that caveat, it is fair to say that Agrippina was a highly effective empress at enacting her own agenda. We've already seen how she used clever political manoeuvres to break the betrothal of Octavia with Lucius Solanus. But while that was an extremely impressive piece of work, that was only part of the job of matching her with Nero. She didn't approach her time as empress completely single-mindedly, but it's fair to say that ensuring that her son Nero became emperor was her main goal. So now that Solanus was out of the picture, it was time to enact phase two, arrange the betrothal. This was comparatively far easier for her to arrange. Indeed, she used more or less the same tactics as she had before. Get a friendly senator to suggest it in the Senate, and get them to agree to the proposal before it had even been formally announced by her or Claudius. This senator used the same sorts of arguments as Vitellius had, that this was about reuniting the two halves of the Julio-Claudian family that had been so at odds since the death of Germanicus. This was all achieved fairly swiftly and with minimal fuss. If people were a little grossed out that Agrippina, wife of her uncle, let's not forget, had now just made her son also into her son-in-law, they were wise enough to keep quiet. The following year, in 50 CE, came phase three, the naming of Nero as Claudius's heir. Now this, of course, was far from a given. Claudius already had an heir in Britannicus, and so far the empire had always been inherited by one man. But there are good reasons why Claudius would have seen naming Nero as an heir alongside Britannicus as being a good idea. 
Remember that while we see succession by primogeniture, i.e. being succeeded by the eldest child, as being the obvious and natural norm, this was not really the case in ancient Rome. Despite the fact that the imperial crown had thus far stayed within the Julio-Claudian family, it had not actually yet directly passed down the line of succession. Indeed, most of the time it had gone to an adopted son. Augustus had gained most of his legitimacy from being posthumously adopted by Julius Caesar. He had then adopted a number of potential heirs, finally handing off the empire to his wife's son, whom he'd also adopted. Tiberius had adopted Germanicus, of course, and it's through him that Caligula became emperor. Indeed, Claudius was the first emperor to come to the throne without being adopted in some manner by his predecessor. Now, this had so far been because no convenient son had emerged to whom the empire could be safely handed off to, but the precedent was there. Equally, there was also plenty of precedent for the empire to be promised to multiple heirs. Augustus had done so twice, first to Lucius and Gaius, and then to Tiberius and Posthumus. It is easy to say that Agrippina must have manipulated her husband into naming Nero as a co-heir, but while of course she would have been a constant and no doubt effective advocate for her son, the fact is that Claudius was no fool, and would have seen the benefits for himself. Twice the number of heirs meant that any potential assassin would have to deal with twice as many threats, both of whom would have their own supporters to protect them. Now, where this gets interesting is on the issue of primacy between the two boys. Nero was three years older than Britannicus, and thus some have suggested that he must have been the primary heir. There was at that point no basis in Roman law by which one could favour one successor over the other. Therefore, technically speaking, Nero and Britannicus were equals. But this is the real world. Nero was three years older than Britannicus, and that is a lot when you're dealing with young adults. Claudius was an old man for his time, and must have known that it was quite possible that he would die before Britannicus came of age, and be able to entrench his own position. By then, Nero would have had a huge head start. Therefore, although it was never made official, Nero was, in reality, the senior heir. All of this a year after his mother had become empress. It was quite the feat. This time Claudius himself went to the Senate and presented the case himself. He used the examples of past emperors adopting heirs from outside their own bloodlines to support his arguments. And it was also suggested that Nero could even share in Claudius's burden of office while he was still alive. He didn't technically have to gain the approval of the Senate on this, but it was the prudent thing to do. And now that he had the help of Agrippina to grease the wheels, it was not all that difficult to accomplish. This is really the perfect example of the new approach to dealing with the Senate that Agrippina had brought with her. In 51, Nero officially came of age in a grand ceremony presided over by Claudius. Every soldier in the empire was presented with a big bonus to celebrate the newly minted adulthood of the co-heir to the imperial throne and coins were minted to promote his profile. Games were thrown, with him standing prominently next to his adopted father, wearing triumphal regalia. Britannicus, meanwhile, was forced to the back, still wearing the toga of a child. Finally, Nero was named Prefect of Rome, an honorary position, as the real tasks of running the Eternal City would have been done by bureaucrats, but it did give him some experience in how to act within what would have been a modelled court. 
Agrippina had managed to arrange all of this for her son, but she wasn't content with just winning him the crown. She wanted to make sure that he would make a success of it. He had spent a lot of his childhood away from her, and his education had been rather lacking. Indeed, it is said that, while she was in exile, his only tutors had been a barber and a dancer, and that wouldn't do at all. Agrippina wanted the best mind in Rome to teach her son everything that he needed to know in order to become a great ruler. The man that she chose was an old friend of ours, Seneca. The great statesman and dramatist has cropped up in this show quite a few times, mostly through his various works. But we last saw him as a political figure in the miniseries on Messalina. If you recall, he had been accused of having an affair with Agrippina's sister Lavilla, and sentenced to death in the early years of Claudius's reign. The emperor had spared Seneca, sending him in exile to Corsica, where he mostly spent the next eight years writing plays and dialogues. Seneca was well known for sharing a similar worldview to Agrippina, both having seen the moral and political decay of the empire during the reign of Caligula. Thus, Agrippina here is clearly seeking to imbue Nero with her own ideas of political economy and rulership. The idea that rulership should be absolute, but done with restraint and consensus. Of course, this didn't work out so well for her, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Recalling Seneca wasn't straightforward, as he had been exiled by Claudius, but Agrippina's influence was so great, even at this early stage of her empressship, that she managed to push it through. Now, you may be asking yourself what Britannicus thought of all of this. Well, shockingly, he wasn't wild about it. According to Tacitus, quote, There was not a person so void of pity as not to feel keen sorrow at the position of Germanicus. Gradually forsaken by the very slaves who waited on him, he turned into ridicule the ill-timed attentions of his stepmother, whose hypocrisy he well understood. But, for now, there was nothing that he could do. The boy had been thoroughly outmaneuvered. Seneca was no friend of Claudius, having blamed him for his eight-year exile, and likely delighted in his role in at least partially disinheriting his son. He would grow a great bond with his young charge, one that would, in later years, rival and eclipse that between mother and son. But we'll return to the issue of succession next week, as Agrippina didn't just restrict her political power plays to Operation Make Nero Emperor. As I've said a few times, her becoming empress led to a more positive relationship between emperor and senate, and her influence over the body was considerable. For example, she got them to make her ally Pallas Praetor. Pallas, remember, was the freedman who had spearheaded her campaign to be made empress, and Agrippina saw this as a way to reward him for a job well done. That said, this would not have been an easy thing to do, as the old fuddy-duddy senate would normally have raised holy hell at the prospect of an ex-slave rising to such an important role. But she managed it. She was just that good. But arguably where she really excelled is that she made sure not to completely alienate people outside her own circle. You wouldn't expect to necessarily thrive in Agrippina's Rome if you weren't her supporter, but you wouldn't face the kind of threats that Messalina would have thrown your way. This is how she laid the grounds for a far more stable relationship at the top of Roman political society. I've said before that she had two great female role models in her life, 
There was her mother, from whom she gained the notion that she and her son were destined to win back the empire after it had been stolen from her father Germanicus. And also Livia, whose model of empresship she seems to have followed. In 50 CE, the same year that her son became Claudius's heir, she persuaded her husband to name her Augusta, the rank that Livia had been honoured with after the death of her husband. Since then, it had been posthumously conferred on Antonia by her grandson Caligula, but had never gone to the wife of a living emperor. Remember that this isn't just a fancy honorific to add on to your name. Being named Augusta meant that you shared in the imperial inheritance of the divine Augustus. It raised you to the same dais as that of the living emperor. There was a reason that no sitting emperor had ever given it to his wife before. She didn't share in his powers, but she did bask in the same majesty. And in many ways, that was even better. When added to her own dynasty, the fact that she was the daughter of Germanicus and the mother of the primary heir to the empire, not to mention her own personal and political abilities, this made her, arguably, the most powerful woman in Roman history. This would be proven beyond any doubt in another great set-piece event. In 51 CE, the Roman army in Britannia finally captured the leader of the native British army of resistance, a man called Caractacus. He and a group of his lieutenants were brought back to the city, where, at a grand ceremony, they were forced to pay homage. But not just to Emperor Claudius. Agrippina was sat next to her husband, and each Briton was forced to pay homage to the emperor and then to the empress in exactly the same manner. Again, this may sound a little trivial, but to the symbolically-minded Romans, this was a huge deal, and this is made clear in the coverage in the sources. Tacitus puts it best in his account of the event. Quote, The emperor granted pardon to Caractacus, to his wife, and to his brothers. Released from their bonds, they did homage also to Agrippina, who was sat near, conspicuous on another throne, in the same language of praise and gratitude. It was indeed a novelty, quite alien to ancient manners, that a woman would sit in state before Roman standards. It was the advertisement of her claim to a partnership in the empire which her ancestors had created. This was completely unprecedented in Roman history but it is a testament to Agrippina that it probably would not have raised much opposition. She was there not just as empress, but as the daughter of Germanicus, the great conquering hero. This was believed to be the final coup de grace of the British campaign, the moment when the islands were finally pacified. For the child of Rome's greatest general in living memory, to be there would have seemed appropriate. But of course that sentiment would never have been there, had she not cleverly cultivated and nurtured and blossomed it. She was born with this great asset, and she exploited it to the full. And this wasn't just an isolated occurrence. Cassius Dio states that, quote, Agrippina often attended the emperor in public, where he was transacting ordinary business when he was giving an audience to ambassadors, though she sat on a separate tribunal. This was one of the most remarkable sights of the time. Her influence wasn't just restricted to Rome. She was involved also in decisions that affected people throughout the empire. But again, most of it would have been behind the scenes. 
As I've said, this means that her power plays would have been fairly invisible for the most part, but we see in great detail how she operated when Judea began to stir. Now, like most things involving this part of the world, this is a very complicated affair, whose specific details I won't trouble you with. But, basically, the province that conforms to modern Israel, Palestine and Jordan had been ruled with broad autonomy for many years by Herod Agrippa, a man who had grown up alongside Claudius and Agrippina in Rome. After he died in 44, the province came under the control of a man called Ventidius Cumanus. Now, the Romans always had difficulty in ruling the Jews, as they obstinately refused to incorporate Roman gods into their faith, or allow their gods to be placed within the Roman pantheon. They were also fiercely nationalist, and so a careful hand was needed to maintain Roman control. This is proven by one instant when a Roman soldier bared his ass and farted an assembled group of worshippers at the Great Temple during Passover, which caused a riot and crush that killed thousands. This was the backdrop in 51, when a group of Jewish pilgrims were attacked by a group of not-so-good Samaritans on the way to Jerusalem. When appeals were made to Cumanus to punish the perpetrators, he refused, and went so far as to violently repress Jewish protests with an army that included a number of Samaritan irregulars. This was either incredibly negligent or deliberately provocative, and led to Jewish leaders appealing above Cumanus's head. Deputations from both sides travelled to the capital, along with Cumanus, who was to be tried for incompetence. Back in Rome, most of Claudius's advisers were fervently anti-Jew, but they did have some powerful supporters, chief amongst them being Agrippina. According to Josephus, the great historian of the Jewish wars, they appealed to one of her allies who, quote, earnestly entreated Agrippina, the emperor's wife, to persuade her husband to hear the cause and to condemn those to be punished who were really the perpetrators of this revolt from the Roman government. Whereupon Claudius was so well disposed beforehand that when he had heard the cause and found that Samaritans had been the ringleaders in those mischievous doings, he gave the order that those who came up to him should be slain and that Cumanus should be banished. The source makes it very clear that it was Agrippina's intervention that was the key here. Claudius was certain to go the other way if she had not made her case. Why did she do it? Well, she had a couple of friends in the region, most notably Herod Agrippa II, the son of her late friend, who would have argued the Jewish cause. She also managed to exploit her victory by once again rewarding her followers, this time getting Pallas' brother Felix the job of procurator of Judea, basically him being the manager of the province's money. This was a very prestigious and important job, and was given to a freedman. Much like the palace's praetorship, it was unheard of for a former slave to be honoured in this way, but it shows all the hallmarks of how Agrippina operated. Carefully and patiently lay the groundwork, place friends in high places, and ensure that they were rewarded when they came through for her. This isn't rocket science, but it was the secret to her success. But none of her allies were as important or well rewarded as Pallas. Her patronage of Felix was just one of the many times that the two came through for each other, and their alliance was one of mutual benefit. She had allowed him to rise above all of Claudius's other freedmen, 
supplanting Narcissus, who had been the most powerful during the reign of Messalina. Pallas was in charge of the imperial treasury, and so her alliance with him allowed her to exercise a great amount of control over the empire's accounts. Claudius was not a particularly extravagant emperor, but he had spearheaded a number of great expensive enterprises, such as the invasion of Britannia, the rebuilding of the port of Ostia, and the project to drain the Fusine Lake, which we will talk about next week. These expenses needed to be managed, and the fact that the empire was never plunged into financial difficulty under Claudius is a testament to the competence of his administrators. That said, there was a fair amount of pocket lining going on, and for good reason. With the exception of Caligula, the Julio-Claudians did not see wealth as something to be spent on luxuries. It was to be accumulated and used as a basis of their power. Therefore, it should only be spent in the service of maintaining or accumulating prestige and influence. Agrippina came from that tradition, and it is something that was remarked on in the sources. Of course she had access to her own fortune, but the alliance with Pallas essentially gave her access to the entire imperial treasury. If power was the accumulation of the most money, then she was now the most powerful person in the empire. Tacitus, who, let's remember, was no fan of Agrippina, seems to offer her a bit of grudging respect when he wrote, quote, Everything was under the control of a woman who did not, like Messalina, insult Rome by loose manners. It was a stringent and, so to say, masculine despotism. There was sternness and generally arrogance in public, no sort of immodesty at home unless it conduced to power. A limitless passion for gold had the excuse of being designed to create a bulwark of despotism. Again, we sadly don't have a huge amount of concrete examples of how she exercised this power, but the fact that she had it was proven during the reign of her son Nero, who engineered the fall of Pallas in order to weaken the power of his mother. This influence that she had was not just in financial or diplomatic matters. One of Claudius's many reforms during his reign was to empower provincial governors to be able to unilaterally act within their own provinces on judicial matters. Technically, legal matters in the provinces had to be judged in Rome, but this was tremendously inefficient, causing great backlogs. Despite this, the Senate guarded this right very tightly, as it was one of the few things that they had left that marked them out as special. To help pass this, Claudius enlisted the help of his wife, who used her friends and allies within the Senate to get them to agree to this policy. The extent of her power and prestige during her time as empress is to be found in a lot of the surviving iconography. She was the first Roman woman, for example, to have statues of her erected in her own lifetime depicting her wearing a diadem. This was normally the preserve of the gods, and therefore few women were afforded this honour, even after they had died. Along with her title of Augusta, this was a sign that she was being viewed, even during her own lifetime, as something more than just a mortal woman. She was being groomed already for deification. Statues of her had been found across the empire, sometimes in the company of her husband, sometimes with her son, but also on her own. We talked in the series on Livia how rare it was to find statues of women in the Roman world, and how revolutionary it was for Livia to be depicted in so many. This is then, yet again, another case of how Agrippina was following her great-grandmother's example. 
She was, of course, also frequently depicted on the coinage, still the best way to promote your profile in the ancient world, as these would have been seen, used, and handled by everyone in the empire, from the poorest farmer to the richest senator. Her name was also honoured in one final way. You may remember that she had been born while her father was on campaign in Germany along the Rhine. Well, by now, the region had been pacified and the army had moved on, leaving it ripe for Roman settlement. Never one to pass up an opportunity to remind everyone that she was the daughter of the man who had revenged Rome upon the German tribes, Agrippina sponsored this new colony, which was made up largely of veteran soldiers. It was called Colonia Claudia Ara Augusta Agrippinensium. Notice her name in there, along that of her husband. Once again, she is being raised the same level of prestige as the emperor himself. Unusually for a Roman colony, every inhabitant, even the native Germans, was made a Roman citizen, with all the rights and protections that entailed. This was very unusual, and one can only assume that it came about at Agrippina's order. It was an inspired move, as it removed all tensions between the settlers and natives, and led the colony to be one of the most peaceful and prosperous in Roman Germany. Its success would lead to it becoming the capital of the new province of Germania Inferior under Domitian, and would even become the capital of the short-lived Gallic Empire in 260. Today, it is the site of the modern city of Cologne, the fourth largest city in Germany, and I'm told that if you go there, you will find shops and businesses that are named in honour of their city's founder, Mutter Colonia, the mother of Cologne. And it is on that high honour that we will leave Agrippina for this week. Next time, we shall look at the darker side of Agrippina's empresship. In order to maintain her power and position, she had to sideline and take down a great many enemies and rivals. Her overarching objective was always to ensure that her son would succeed to the imperial throne. Anyone who got in her way would face the consequences, even if he was the emperor himself. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.